If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. It never dawned on me how much walking I used to do until I bought a house in the suburbs. Like when I'd say, I'm going for coffee. Of course I was walking, but now it's like three miles and no latte is worth that. I find myself inviting people on walks with me like it's a scheduled activity. This morning, my neighbor asked me what I'm doing and I actually said, I'm going for a walk with Nancy. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 123 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, author and U.S. Army veteran Brett Allen, I want to remind you about all of the things that you can find at MistressCarrie.com. Not only can you find all of the episodes of the Mistress Carrie podcast and every situation report, but you can also find all 204 episodes of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. You can also get the links to all of my social media accounts. You can check out my blog and my photo gallery. You can shop in the online Mistress Carrie store. And to keep track of every show coming through New England, check out the event calendar. It's filled with concerts, charity events, and all of the places that you can come and hang out with me. And if you want to send me a direct message, you can do it right through the website. Just click the message the studio button. My guest this week, Brett Allen, is a high husband. He's a father. He's a former U.S. Army cavalry officer who deployed to Afghanistan in 2009. He was deployed with the 3rd Squadron 71st Cavalry Regiment of the 10th Mountain Division. That deployment was in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. And during the deployment, Brett served as the squadron's air operations planner. He was the lead bootleg movie scout and was the linchpin in headquarters coffee production. That's according to his official bio, by the way. All of the experiences during his time in the military, the good, the bad, the strange, well, he's written a novel about it. It's called Kilroy Was Here. It's a tongue-in-cheek look at the American operations in Afghanistan, and he is my guest this week. Brett and I talked about his upbringing and what led him to join the Army in the first place. We talked about his writing process. We talked about the history of Kilroy Was Here. And we talked about the people that actually inspired the stories in the book. Kilroy was here may not be autobiographical, but it's pretty damn close. So allow me to introduce you to author and U.S. Army veteran, Brett Allen. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your bra on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, 
this is David from the band Disturbed. You're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Brett, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Any friend of Jonathan Hills is a friend of mine. Oh, I, he's a great guy. I, I met him. Actually, this is going to sound like very like millennial, but I met him over Twitter. Uh, we actually connected because we were uh, deployed to Afghanistan at the same time. Um, so I reached out to him when I, I found out about that and we've kind of hit it off since then. Anybody that's not familiar with who we're talking about, First Sergeant Jonathan Hill was portrayed in the film The Outpost and uh, was part of the Battle of Cop Keating and was on episode four of the Mistress Carrie podcast, which seems like forever and a day ago. But um, he's an amazing guy that had an unbelievable military his, uh, uh, career and um, is now so active uh, advocating on behalf of veterans that um, it's kind of hard not to stumble on him on social media. So it doesn't surprise me that that's how you guys connected. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy. I, I mean, he was more than happy to get a copy of the book and read it and then help me push it on social media. He's, he's been awesome. So. so he reached out to me and was like, you need to talk to him and you need to check out his book because it's so different. So the name of your book, I have it right here because you sent me an autographed copy, which I appreciate. I'll put it in my library in the war room. Uh, awesome. It's called Kilroy Was Here. And it, it's still uh, a mystery as to whether or not the Kilroy Was Here drawings came from Massachusetts. But one of the working theories is that it was a rivet inspector uh, that worked in the shipyard in Quincy, Massachusetts. So it's kind of got... A little bit of a tie, but has that ever really been 100% proven? Because there's a lot of people that are claiming to be Kilroy. Yeah, everything I've read says that it's still up for debate, but uh, pretty much every source goes back to that being the original story of, like, uh, I think it's John J. Kilroy um, being the guy that started making the chalk marks around the rivets in the, the shipyard um, so they could pay people per rivet, and he would write Kilroy was here because people would start erasing the chalk marks and moving them to different rivets to get paid more. So he was uh, writing his name on it. And then the troops on their way to Europe and the Pacific started seeing Kilroy was here in the hulls of these ships. So they took the message and started spreading it all over Europe. And so that, that seems to be the predominant theory of where it came from. It yeah. might be like the first meme. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, the first viral meme. Yeah, for sure. exactly. Um, do you mind if we start at the beginning? Because I want to I want to get to know you leading up to the experience that you had in the military that led to the book. So originally you're from Michigan, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, born and raised in Fremont, Michigan. I still live in uh, right outside of Grand Rapids. Uh, my wife's a 
teacher in East Grand Rapids, and uh, I work for a local law firm here when I'm not writing. So. Was that does that mean you're one of the OG Tom Brady fans? <laughs> I, I'm actually not a Tom Brady fan. I was going to say, if you say yes, it'll help you sell books in New England and in Tampa. <laughs> no, um, and to be quite honest, I, I I don't follow football that much at all. But I went to Michigan State, and so um, anybody going through. Michigan State, I would probably align with over U of M. So, <laughs> but so born and raised in Michigan, and I think like a lot of people that ended up in the military in this generation, nine eleven had a profound effect on you. Yes. Yep. So I was a a senior in high school uh, during when September eleven happened, and uh, I, I remember it very vividly um somebody from the office coming into our morning class and telling us a plane had crashed into the world trade center and i was 17 year old kid at the time i was like what's the world trade center and like i'm thinking like a small biplane or something like that and it was an accident Uh, and then a few minutes later another plane so we knew it wasn't an accident but uh yeah i remember that whole day uh, very clearly, and I had thought about joining uh, joining up right out of high school. Um, my parents had uh, talked me into going to to Michigan State, though I had already been accepted there. So they're like, "Don't just get some school in before you make the final call on whether you you go into the army or not." So I got to to U of M, and then. In 2003, I remember watching the invasion of Iraq uh, in early 2003 and just thinking to myself, why not me? Like, why am I allowed to stay back here and live my life like nothing's happening when people my age, people I graduated with are crossing the line into Iraq? So I, I... Got to thinking again about driving out of school and uh, enlisting. Uh, and then my dad found a uh, two-year ROTC program at Michigan State. So it was for anybody who hadn't made the decision before coming to college. Um, there was a catch-up program that you could go to at Fort Knox. And they basically taught you everything you needed to know in order to join up with the ROTC for your junior year. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know, ROTC is like, it's officer training, uh, that you go through in college in conjunction with whatever your area of study is. So I did that catch up program at Fort Knox. I was lucky enough to get uh, a slot at airborne school the same summer. So I got to go jump out of planes at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, I got back to Michigan state and immediately signed a contract, uh, for my last two years, um, committing to four years of active duty after college. It's Um, important to note too, that your parents weren't trying to keep you out of the military because you come like a lot of veterans post 9-11, you come from a military family. Yes. Yeah. My, uh, my grandpa was a ranger in world war two. Um, my dad, uh, had actually joined the Marines, but then broke his leg in boot camp. So he had been uh, discharged. Um, and so my mom didn't like it. Of course, my mom, my mom worried. My dad worried too, but he 
they both understood why I was doing it and they weren't going to try to block it. So um, my dad just wanted me to do what he felt was the the smart way to do it with the opportunities that I already had laid out in front of me. So. And so as I was looking at your bio and kind of doing some research on you, there were a couple of things that we had in common. And the fact that you're a jumper is one of them. Me on the civilian side, you on the military side. Okay, so you've done skydiving? Yeah, I still do. That's awesome. I, I want to go skydiving. Like That looks like so much more fun than what we got to do. It's way more fun than what you guys did, unless you get into like the halo stuff. But right. even the military free fall jumping, you're loaded with gear and, you know, you're training to land in places that are no fun. Jumping on the civilian side with your friends like naked and then chugging beers when you land is like a completely <laughs> different style of jumping altogether. Yeah, they, they frowned on that in the army. So jumping uh, naked or the beers yeah. after? Both. <laughs> and I should note that the beers come at the end of the day, not after each jump. That's illegal. But um, but the jumping naked, yeah. I mean, it could be dangerous. You're getting shot at. That's what you're training for. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and plus you're we're way lower altitude, and you're just trying not to trip on the feet of the guy in front of you as you're sprinting out the door. So yeah, it was it was different. We had guys get injured in all kinds of ways, both from like landing hard we had one guy that got bit by a brown recluse spider as soon as he hit the ground and he was out of out of the class we had guys do uh they call it um uh, uh, uh leapfrogging so when you go out the door you're so close together that sometimes your parachute will drift over top of somebody else and it steal their parachute steals your air again the burble yeah and you just go plummeting past them, then steal their their air, and you kind of leapfrog all the way down if you don't get tangled up. So, so is it? It it didn't scare you enough that you don't want to do it on the civilian side because it's way, it's it's a way different experience. Every jumper, military jumper that I know that's gone on the civilian side is like, oh, this is fun. Yeah, I would I would much prefer to do it on the civilian side. It's <laughs> way safer. Well, if you ever come to New England, you're more than welcome to come with me and all my idiot friends. That sounds good to me. <laughs> so you enlist or I guess enroll is a better word into this ROTC program in school. And yeah. you finally are in college with kind of a direction because it's pretty easy to just get into college and be like, I don't know what I want to do yet. I'm just kind of here drinking yeah. beer. Changed my major seven times on paper before I even joined <laughs> the university. So. Yeah, that, I mean, that was, I can't say that that wasn't a considerable portion of the decision to join to. It was just I didn't know what I wanted to do and other than serve. So uh, that was a, a good way for me to knock that, uh, check that block, but also kind of kick the football down the field as far as having to make a decision on the rest of my life. So um, I joined up and I ended up getting branched uh, into the armor branch. Um, so I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky right after graduation and uh, went through Armor Officer Basic, which was essentially at the time it was all tank training. Um, we learned all tank tactics and got to 
do all the positions inside of a tank, drive, load, gun, uh, command. Um, and then, of course, I, uh, I was supposed to go to an airborne unit um, over in Germany. There were four of us guys that were supposed to, to go to this unit. And uh, they pulled our orders uh, two weeks into Armor Officer Basic. And so um, two of the guys got sent to JRTC down in Fort Polk, Louisiana to battle mosquitoes. <laughs> and uh, two of us got uh, stationed actually at Fort Knox where we had to be basic training exos for a year, which it's not a dream assignment for a new lieutenant, but uh, you'll never meet anybody more fun than basic training drill sergeants. <laughs> I think Jonathan, Jonathan Hill, uh, I believe, was a drill sergeant. Yes, he was. You will attest to that for sure. Well, so. a couple things. First of all, you're obviously not claustrophobic if you wanted to go inside tanks for a living. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty tight in there. And it gets real hot in mid-July and Fort Knox inside a tank. And second of all, you probably got really good with the with the straight hand yelling and the the and the screaming. Please tell me that you stole some of like Arlie Ermey's lines from Full Metal Jacket or something. If you're going to be a, a drill sergeant or a drill instructor, you kind of have to you kind of have to be funny while you're screaming at people. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't get to do any of the yelling like that. I. I tried to stay in my own lane as an officer and just let the, the drill sergeants do that. Uh, but it was one of my favorite days was the first day of each basic training rotation because you get to watch all these fresh faced privates come in and not know what to expect. And then just the drill sergeants get to let loose on them and you hear anything and everything that could possibly come out of a human's mouth on that day. So a day like that, and and obviously basic training boot camp, the process is to basically tear you down to kind of erase a lot of the things you learned before you arrive and then build you back up as a new person. Yeah. Which is why it literally starts from the bottom up, from, from the haircut, teaching you how to make a bed, teaching you how to dress yourself again. It it really is kind of killing the old you and, and birthing a new you. Yeah. And not just to, not just from the individual perspective either, because you, uh, I mean, you survive things like that with the, the guys around you. So it really levels the playing field of everyone you're with. So there's nobody that there's no guy with better hair than you. There's no, guy that uh, that's smarter than you because they're everybody's getting torn down just the same so it, it breaks you all down to the same level and it makes it much easier uh to operate as a cohesive unit uh, that way everybody i know in the military whether they went through basic or boot camp still keeps in touch with at least one person that they went through it with because it's kind of like the people you met like your freshman year in the dorms in college it's that formative experience of bonding and only those people understand what it was like at that time. Is that true for you too, that you still have friends from back in the early days? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I still keep in contact with a lot of the guys from ROTC. Um, my initial, the catch up program I did at Fort Knox was 
it was kind of like a short and basic training. So we got the whole drill sergeant treatment and all that. So I keep in contact with some of the people from there. I still keep in contact with a lot of the drill sergeants that I worked with at Fort Knox. Um, so it, all of those things that the intensity of it shapes you as a person, I, I think you tend to hold on to those connections. So. 9-11 changed a lot of things when it comes to the military because before that, the recruiting tactics to and the, the benefits of joining the military in any way, active duty, reserve, guard, um, was all about the the GI Bill, the benefits that you can go to college, that, that it's going to help you get jobs. Anyone that ended up in the military after 9-11 was painfully aware that you're going to end up overseas most likely, that the odds are against you staying home and kind of skating through your four or six year commitment without ending up deployed because you you enlisted or commissioned watching war on television. Right. And that I think that's the unique thing about uh, that this generation that uh, that has signed up post 9-11 uh, especially uh, prior to the the end of uh, Iraq and the end of Afghanistan, but you signed up knowing full well you were going. Like I don't think I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who signed up in that time frame who their intent was to serve in the military but try to avoid deployment. Uh, I think you, that was just a a thing that you knew signed in the papers was that you were going to be deploying at some point or another. You wrote the book and it starts kind of at the end of 2008 and goes through 2009. And one of the things that's so interesting about this book is that unlike a lot of military novels or, or military books, is that it's not narrated by you and it's not your firsthand account of your experience on deployment. And when I was going through it, the idea that you took your experiences, turned them into this fictitious story about these fictitious characters, I thought was a really interesting take on it. Why did you decide to do that? Um, for a number of reasons. I, at first, I, I, I love fiction. Um, I, I, that's primarily what I read is fiction. I do uh, read some nonfiction, but what I want to write is, is fiction. One of my favorite books is Catch-22, um, and I love that book just because of how over-the-top all of the characters are, and they're just characters of what a normal officer or NCO or whatever in the Army would be, and I wanted to take that kind of feel, but I also wanted to tell it from a first-person's perspective, um, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll say a lot of the events in the book probably more than you would expect have uh derived from actual events that happened um and while i was there i just some of the stuff that was happening was so off the wall and crazy that i was just like no one would believe me if i wrote a, a book about this and then called it fiction so i finally was like you know that's what i'm gonna do um so a lot of the characters, I uh, I took pieces of people that I d 
served with both in Afghanistan and not in Afghanistan and took those characteristics and kind of mashed them into characters that were hopefully equally as over the top as those in Catch-22, but also really recognizable to anybody who's served in the military. Uh, that's one been one of the biggest comments or feedback that I've got is that people instantly recognize a lot of these characters as somebody like a superior officer they had or a chaplain they served with or an NCO they had. And that's been probably the most rewarding piece is knowing that I, I connected with people on that level. One of the things that happens with the podcast, obviously, and as a civilian, but also as a military wife, um, you know, one of the challenges is always bridging the civilian world and the military world. That if you write a, a military book, that sometimes your audience is only going to be military and, and getting civilians interested in what's going on. And and one of the things I try to do is is to always make sure that you're not leaving people that don't understand military jargon, military experience behind with the acronyms and the and the slang because it's pretty easy for someone to get lost in the terminology and to then be like, oh, okay, this book's not written for me. So the way that you kind of wrote this book makes these stories, while they're all based in truth, accessible for anyone that has no military experience. Yeah, so I've read plenty of military books, and it's always tough when, even for somebody that's been in the military, to deal with the alphabet soup that you get with all the acronyms, because the army is notorious for even using the same acronym for multiple different things. So I wanted to make sure that I steered pretty clear of that. Um, and I purposefully left a lot of that jargon out just so, uh, so I could make it more accessible. And then in the back of the book, I did put a, um, a glossary for the acronyms that I did use so that people could reference it. Although I wish I would now I wish I would have put it at the beginning. I've had a number of people say like, thanks for the glossary in the back, but I, I wish I would have known about it before I got back there. So it's yeah, like you gotta put a thing on the front page like, look in the back before yeah. you read the book. Three, three page three hundred and two. So yeah. Um that was what important to me to be able to uh to make it so that people who didn't serve uh could understand it because I feel like the book I wrote is it's kind of filling the gap. Uh, there are a lot of people that uh, served over in Iraq and Afghanistan that weren't door kickers, that weren't out there in firefights every day. There are a lot of people there that were just trying to keep the behind the scenes stuff together. And those those narratives get left out in a lot of stories. Um, so I wanted to make sure I, I represented some of the craziness that those people go through, too. Well, I think the I think the breakdown when it comes to the military is that for every one person that pulls a trigger, there's ninety nine people behind the scenes putting the gun in their hand. Right. And, and when you think about it in that respect, with the number of people that were deployed to the Middle East in 20 years millions step foot on that ground over 20 years it just kind of gives you an idea of how big the military really is when there's that many people 
the the logistics, the transportation, the intelligence. I mean, it's it, down to the people that deliver the mail and the medics and and the hospitals. I mean, it's a massive organization. Yeah. And this book is for them. I, I, and that's why I'm trying to spread the word because I, I think a lot of people would uh, appreciate the story and recognize the characters and be able to to relate to the main character. So. One of the other similarities that you and I have besides um, our love of jumping is that I spent about three weeks in Iraq and another three weeks in Afghanistan as an embedded journalist. Oh, and wow. So the idea of the experience of someone in Afghanistan um, from a humor-based perspective and telling some of those behind-the-scenes thing, uh, as an embedded journalist, it you know, something like Generation Kill was like the closest thing that I had ever seen that represented my perspective of being with U.S. troops as a civilian and as a journalist and all of the behind the scenes, you guys always call it shenanigans, all of the the funny things, the downtime, the the time in the Humvees, uh, sitting around at night, you know, making small talk about ridiculous things, stupid challenges and what you can get somebody to do for 10 bucks to keep yourselves occupied. Um, there's so much of that. And those are sometimes the most important bonding times for people in the military is 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 the times when you're not actually doing your job. Right. Yeah. There's actually a, a story in the book that is very, very close to how it really happened. Um, where the, the main character, um, the, the backstory to it is that the, uh, Sergeant major and one of the officers keeps challenging uh the main character who's a, a captain to um like in bagram they challenge him to see how many cookies he can stuff in his mouth in the defect because they have these gigantic cookies and so he he does that and there's an incident with that but then later when they're out at their fob they've received like a couple packages of peeps because it's around easter time and they challenge him to see how many peeps he can uh, stuff in his mouth. So he thinks it's going to be just this low-key thing, but they end up uh, getting basically all the officers and all the NCOs in the base to uh, come into the operations office, and it's like a huge spectacle, and people are taking bets and stuff like this. Um, so long story short, I stuffed 26 peeps in my mouth, and I'm pretty sure I'm still the, the Eastern Afghanistan record holder. Um, but, uh, we, uh, we all collectively got in rather big trouble from our squadron commander because we would cause a, such a disruption, uh, to everything going on. Well, I was going to say, I, I wasn't sure if you'd cop to it, but the main character is kind of loosely based on you and your experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I, I definitely twisted things around and, and changed things, but, uh, most of it is based off from things that I either went through or witnessed firsthand. So, um, people that listen to my show over the years on the radio spent a lot of time and money packing those care packages. We sent thousands of them. So to hear that, um, things like peeps were appreciated, 
uh, and definitely brought a little bit of fun and home to you guys um, warms my heart because we were always trying to send not only necessities, but also things that would, you know, make um, for some lighthearted times and to be able to kind of help you relax a little bit. Yeah, well, it was greatly appreciated. So, so thank you for that. Um, because that was honestly, that's the highlight of any day or week is when the mail trucks come in and you have something to open from home. So at least it was for me. So I only spent three weeks in Afghanistan and, um, a couple of things happened. One, uh, it took me about a month after I came home to like stop coughing and, you know, and I was only there for a few weeks. And so there's all of this news now about the burn pits and the red, you know, the uh, the new legislation to help take care of all of the, the injuries that are coming just from the exposure that so many of our, our troops were um, around during their deployment. I tell people that all the time. So I was like, I was only there for three weeks. And I, it's not like I was literally the one dumping the stuff on the burn pits, but it took me a while to just be able to breathe again. And I always talk about my experience over there to kind of get people to understand. I only got this little snapshot, but I was always amazed at like what was coming out of my face. Like, like what my nose could produce. (laughs) I've never in my life as a person, besides maybe when I was a little kid shown another person, my boogers. And I did that almost every day in Afghanistan because the medic was asking me, because I was like, you'll never believe what is coming out of my face. Well, you want to know what right looks like, right? Like, if that's not normal, you got to know. So. And, and, and also had so many conversations about my bodily fluids and, and my pee color and, and my bowel functions. Yep, the uh, the medics get pretty personal. They, they, there's really nothing they won't cover. That's for sure. Um, we were lucky we didn't have any any burn pits uh, on the the small fob that I was at. Um, we were we were pretty remote, but we were lucky enough that our brigade headquarters was uh, like a few miles up a fairly well-traversed highway so they were able to get us some pretty legit like latrine trailers so there wasn't any need to be burning everything so yeah we were lucky in that respect but uh, i mean i've heard the horror stories and i I served with guys that had had to pull, pull that duty on previous deployments where they spent full days out there just burning trash and poop and yeah it's it's crazy when you find out okay the inevitable's happening you're headed to afghanistan i know that i was only going for three weeks for work but not in a military capacity so i know what i had to pack and i also knew that i was going to be the only woman embedded with infantry units so you know there were certain things that i had to make sure that i was going to have access to and when you find out that you're going to Afghanistan and you've got all the gear and all the stuff that you got to make sure you have with you from a lighthearted perspective, you're also trying to find a little room in your ruck to bring some comforts of home and some funny things. 
And those are the things that always come out on those nights when you're sitting around with the guys. Talk to me about some of the things you were able to bring with you and some of the craziest things you saw other people just pull out of their ruck randomly. And you're like, when the hell did you get that? Um, oh, man. For myself, I don't... I don't really recall bringing anything too crazy i mean everybody brings a hard drive uh with as many downloaded movies as they possibly can bring and that becomes like the thing that you do in your downtime over there was you would trade hard drives with people and take stuff from their hard drive and put it on your hard drive so i I think i still have mine i've got like a library of, of bootleg movies on this hard drive um my my former platoon. So I had been a platoon leader uh, for six months uh, before we deployed. And then I had blown out my knee in a training exercise. So I had to have like ACL replacement surgery and all that stuff. So obviously they, they took me out of a platoon and put me in a staff position because I wasn't in any situation where I could be going out on combat missions. Um, but my platoon unbeknownst to me had stolen my Stetson, uh, my cavalry hat and packed it in one of their connexes. Uh, and it deployed to Afghanistan with us. And then they busted it out while we were over there and made me wear it. <laughs> so that was kind of, that was a pretty cool thing because like nobody else we had, like, it sounds stupid, but we had like a, hat days on Friday where you didn't have to wear your proper military cover. You could wear like a baseball cap or something. So on the first hat day we had, they busted out my Stetson and I got to wear that around. So, and it's still, it's down in my basement, still got dust from Afghanistan on it. So that dust will never go away. No matter how much you try to clean it up. Nope. That is for sure. When I arrived in Afghanistan, we brought with us the DVD of the Bruins winning the Stanley Cup because it had happened and the guys we were with from Massachusetts were already gone when the Bruins won the Cup. So they let us have a Bruins night and they let all the guys um, wear Bruins gear. And we, awesome. we got a one eye and they put a sheet on the side of the building and we were able to watch the Bruins win the Stanley Cup. And it's always cool that every once in a while they kind of let you not have to have your uniform completely squared away and you can kind of goof off a little bit. Yeah. 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 They do a pretty good job of that. We had one NCO that I don't know how he did it, but he had like an entire entertainment center hooked up in his hooch. I don't know whether he bought cheap versions of stuff in country or if his wife shipped it to him but like he would have movie nights with all, a bunch of other ncos and they had like a pretty big screen tv for over there and they had surround sound speakers ncos are pretty good at uh scrounging stuff up in combat zones it's called re- resourceful yes yes they're masters of logistics yes they are um This podcast, you know, I call it if I describe it to someone as like a rock lifestyle podcast because music is one of the the most common threads that tie all humans together. And I know from my time, you talk about the hard drives with all the movies. um, 
there was also a thing when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan where getting in the Humvees, there was always the aux cable and who got to plug in their MP3 player to control the soundtrack inside the trucks. And it is such a strong memory for me that even to this day, and this happened in 2011, it's like it happened yesterday, that we were on a convoy going through Kabul and somebody just plugged in the random MP3 player. Everybody kind of put him in a hat and, and, and you know, the guy in the passenger seat just kind of plugged one in and hit random. And it was one of those things where you just never knew what was going to come into your headsets. And Paul Simon's Call Me Al <laughs> came on and Fooch, the gunner in my truck, was doing the Chevy Chase dun, 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 as we're on this convoy driving through the middle of Kabul. And it's really funny. It shows you how powerful music can be because it it really does align itself with memories and make it so vivid for you. So can you talk about some of the music and the soundtrack of of your deployment and some of the songs that take you right back there? Yeah, uh, I can think of one in particular. Um, so I worked, I was in our S3 office, our operations office. Um, so I, I was the air officer liaison to our brigade's um, uh, aviation unit. And I worked really closely with the, the S3 and the assistant S3 our fire support officer and our S2. We were all the intelligence officer. We were all in the same office. And uh, that way we were like kind of a one-stop shop for when the the squadron commander wanted to come in and yell at us about PowerPoint slides. And uh, so we, I don't know where it came from or how it happened, but it's, it's stupid, but you know, MIA's paper airplanes. Yeah. So that song became like the theme song for every time a mission changed and we had to do an entirely new operations order or new PowerPoint slides or anything like that. So every time the the SCO would come in and yell at us about something we did wrong operationally or a new operation that had to happen tomorrow that just nixed the, our plans for the rest of the day. Like that was the song that went on and we would all just play the song, buckle into our computers and, <laughs> and start going. That's so. the song. All I want to do is zoom, a zoom, 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 and a boom, boom, and take yep. your money. That's the song, right? Yep. yep. So every time I hear that song now, I'm back in the plywood operations office in the middle of Afghanistan. So. It is funny how music can really make you go right back there. Yeah. I text the guys I was on the convoy with all the time. If I just stumble upon the song and I'll videotape myself singing to it in the car or something <laughs> and I'll text to it to them and just be like, just saying, hi, I'm just thinking of you. That's awesome. Uh, one of the other things that happened while I was over there, and I don't know if it's something that they put in it. I don't know if I've been drugged by the military. I don't know if my DNA has been changed. Um, for some reason, when I was in Afghanistan, every day while I was there, I craved Jello. I ate Jello three meals a day while I was there. And I think I'm pretty sure that my genetic makeup has been permanently altered by the rippets that I drank. <laughs> yes. The, 
the, it's funny you bring up rivets because I was just talking, uh, I, I do, um, uh, gear reviews for task and purpose magazine, uh, sometimes. And they were actually doing a piece on energy drinks that veterans used to drink or still drink or that they recommend. So there was a lot of chatter about the little half cans of Rippet that we used to get over there. And there's actually a variation of Rippet in my, in my book uh, because a, a resupply of Rippets gets interrupted, which then interrupts all of base operations because people can't function. Without yeah, how it. are you supposed to function without the Rippets? You can't. It, yeah. they, they could have ended the war almost overnight if they just stopped the shipment of the Americans' rippets. Yeah, I remember guys trying to leave the defect with their cargo pockets just packed full of those cans of rippet and uh, like getting caught by the sergeant major on the way out. So, yeah, I, I drank my fair share of rippet over there. I usually look at the military and break it down into thirds. It doesn't matter the branch. You're either a country fan, a hip hop fan, or a rock fan. And that is enlisted, officer, Marine, Air Force, it doesn't matter. You're either a country fan, a hip hop fan, or a rock fan. What third of the military do you fall into? I I would be hard pressed to categorize. I, I can rule out hip hop. Um, but I tend to split the line between country and, uh, rock and roll. Um, I like country. My wife leans to the rock and roll. Uh, she's her, she grew up on, uh, eighties hair bands and and stuff like that. So, um, she's definitely uh, cultivated my interest in that a lot more. Um, but, uh, we're both kind of into like the newer bluegrassy country like the chris stapleton and and, uh, uh, guys like him but uh we're getting the the kids indoctrinated into the uh, the rock and roll um this last year i i swear on their drives to school we alternated between two cds and it was queen's greatest hits and uh ccr and that's all they wanted um so that's that's what we listen to. And they'd get tired of one. We'd go to the next until I got tired of that. And then we'd go back. I talked to Ronnie Radke from Falling in Reverse recently. And we had a conversation about Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's one of those things there. If it comes on the radio and you don't sing along, he said, it's like someone not liking dogs. You just can't be trusted <laughs> if you can't sing along to Bohemian Rhapsody in the car. That is true. My I get really, uh, really weird looks from the kids, though, because I... Uh, I, I get into it when Bohemian Rhapsody comes on. Um, my son's favorite is Killer Queen, though, so he makes me play that every time. That's a parenting win right there. Your kid's got good taste. Yeah, I I have no no arguments against it. Did so. you grow up with rock music in the house, or, no. or was it country? It was country. Uh, my dad used to play it whenever we were in the truck going anywhere. So um, we, we traveled a lot for archery tournaments uh, when I was young. And uh, I have heard every country song prior to uh, 1999 a <laughs> uh, hundred times. So when you spend time overseas, 
there's always that inevitability, hopefully, for most that are fortunate enough to pack up and come home. And the packing up and coming home um, is obviously bittersweet in a lot of ways because there's relationships that are forged in steel that you make. And, and when you're active duty, it's not like a, a, a National Guard unit where you're going to come home and kind of still all live around each other, that you're going to be active duty and kind of scatter to the wind when you get back. Um, but there's also this idea of, um, you know, if, if you lost people during that deployment, there's also that kind of survivor's guilt of, of your coming home when those people weren't fortunate enough to be able to come home. Can you talk to me about your preparedness on, on coming home and what that was like for you and then what your adjustment was back in the States once you got back? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know if this is true for all units, um, but we had a pretty – in my mind, a pretty long decompression time before we we got fully back. So we were in this remote uh, fob in uh, south of Kabul, and we when the other the unit that was taking over for us came in, they uh, slowly kind of took the reins from us, and like so, you slowly had less and less to do each day uh, as they were taking over. And then from there, we flew back to Bagram, and most of us spent two weeks on the ground at Bagram um, waiting for, I, I think there was a certain decompression period that we had to go through, um, but they kind of pitched it as we're waiting for the birds to be available to like take us back home. So it was like two weeks of laying around on a cot, swapping hard drives and watching movies because there wasn't anything else you could really do um and then uh so by the time you get done with the two weeks of just laying around after a year of going 24 7 you're chomping at the bit to get on that plane and just do anything to get out of there um so i i think it was almost a sense of relief uh when we finally got on the birds to to come back home um and then we had the the welcome home ceremony um that most units have my parents and my brother had uh, come out to to welcome welcome us back um so it, it was strange uh shifting the mentality of just hyper focus all the time and going from working 14 to 16 hour days to going back to a regular like nine to five schedule. That was probably the weirdest of it. Um, just having that much more free time and having time to think about things. Um, there's you, you spend a lot of time and especially by the probably more so as the deployments got later into the war, you spent a lot of time just like worrying about your buddies, I think, um, because you know that um, a lot of people don't adjust uh, well when they come back, especially those that have really been in some hard stuff and really 
seen some bad things. And probably not for the first time. Right. That was the thing about this last 20 years of war is that, you know, there, there were people that served in, say, World War II that, that deployed and then came home. Same thing with Vietnam. You did a year, you came back, and you never went back again. But this war would send people for multiple year-long deployments. And so the, the effects of those deployments were compounding. Yeah, and like, especially on families too. Uh, like, you not only are you worrying about your families, but you're wor- or your your friends, but you're worrying about your friends' families and how that dynamic shifts as soon as you come home too. Um, I was, I guess, fortunate enough at the time to. I was a single guy, so I didn't have that adjustment to to come back to, and I uh, had arranged before we deployed home to uh, live with two of my or three of my fellow officers that I had been working very closely with over there. So I think for me, that was like made the transition that much easier because I just lived for a year with these guys working very closely. And now we're living together stateside and working closely together. So it was, it was, a fairly easy transa- uh, transition in that respect. But. It used to be a lot more common. You talk about something like a World War II deployment where the guys were all on the ships coming home. That was forced decompression. Right. They couldn't get home any faster. I-, I remember leaving Kabul, flying out of the Kabul airport, which, um, you know, there's a whole podcast episode that I did with with the producer that went with me and kind of what a scary experience just Kabul airport was because the, the our military guys couldn't go into the airport with us and you get on a plane and next thing you know, we're at Logan airport in Boston, like, you know, 16, 18, 22 hours later. And we're standing in the middle of Boston, still covered in Kabul. That's what we, the dust we were talking about. Okay. And I'm holding an iced coffee and I'm back there. And I was like, but, but I was just in danger, like less than yeah. 24 hours ago, that downshift is like hitting a wall and so the the idea that in modern wars you can be in a war zone one minute and home the next, that decompression period, I, I think as annoying as it is to be sitting around Bagram with nothing to do is kind of important too. Yeah. I will say one of the strange things that coming back was not having a rifle on me at all times. Because like, when you're deployed, you have a rifle that you are accountable for 24 seven and it goes with you everywhere. And then you come home and one of the first things you do is you turn in your rifle. And then for a week afterwards, you're constantly looking for that rifle because you feel like you should have it at all times. Um, It was the exact opposite for me. Now I grew up in a Navy and firefighting family. So there weren't a lot of guns around. So I had a pretty healthy fear of guns back in the day. And when I was in Iraq in 06, the idea of getting used to the guns being everywhere all the time that you guys had them in the chow hall and they were just on the table and that you just, you kind of had them like people grab their cell phone or their purse at home. Right. For me, I had to adjust the other way to get used to them being around. The first gun I ever loaded was a 50 cal (laughs) in Iraq. That's awesome. And and so the idea of like 
you know, if you're not around them a lot to get used to them being around all the time. And for you, it's the exact opposite. It's like now you come home and it's like, wait, it's not just normal for somebody to have a sidearm and a rifle and like all of the stuff. Yeah. And I mean, that's uh, to go full circle. That's one of the things that gets drilled into you at basic training. That is an extension of your body and it better not be out of reach. And to then go back to having not having it, it just feels weird. So. Um, I, I do a lot of talking, obviously, about veterans uh, advocating on behalf of veterans um, and especially using my trips overseas as kind of examples to be able to kind of explain to civilians what my experience was like, because it, I'm obviously wasn't in the military, but you know, got to peek at the great and powerful laws a little bit behind the curtain. And people have told me for a long time that I, that I should write a book about my experiences. And anytime I talk to anyone that has written a book, I ask them the same question. To me, the blank page or screen in front of you is this hurdle that is so high to jump over. When you made the decision to write the book, how did you start? Because to me, that seems like the hardest part. I did everything wrong <laughs> so many times. Um, so when I for, I started outlining this book probably back in, I think in 2012 was when I started outlining. And I had this rough idea of what I wanted to do. And so I put down kind of like a general concept. I knew I wanted to follow like a year long deployment. Um, at the time I was thinking I would follow three different characters and write it in the third person. And so finally I was just like, you know what, I'm just gonna, I was reading different books on writing and pretty much all of them were like, the biggest thing you gotta do is just sit down and write. So I did that. I just started knocking out chapters and I got about 13 chapters in, I think. And I was like, this is garbage. <laughs> um, so so I, I was getting frustrated with like the character shifts and the perspective shifts. Um, so I narrowed it down to a singular first person and I kind of took those three characters and just merged them into one. And the rest of it went fairly smooth. Um, writing the last uh, 14 chapters. And then I then had to go back and completely rewrite the first 13 chapters to fit in with the last ones. Um, and when you say and chapters, it sounds like you wrote a 700 page book, but the chapters are short and very easy to read. There's just a lot of them. Right. Yeah. And I, there was a lot of editing. Like I, my first draft was about 120,000 words and I, in editing, I cut out a quarter of that. So I, I cut it down to about 90,000 words. Um, and that was like a huge learning process too, was doing the editing rounds. And that in its essence is my favorite part. Um, because when you're writing a first draft, you're kind of, for me anyway, you're throwing crap at the wall to see if it sticks. And the way I've kind of started 
taking the approach to writing the new stuff that I'm doing is like, I just, I force myself to sit down and knock out at least 500 words a day. And some days I'm like, all this crap's going to get edited out, but I have to get my 500 words in. And sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's good. But then when you go back through the editing, you're like, okay, I can take this and I can move it here. It's like trying to solve a, a puzzle with all of the different pieces that you've created over the first draft. I went on vacation recently with my husband and the family to Key West. And we went on the, the Hemingway tour yeah. and that's the Hemingway approach that we saw his writing room and every morning he would get up first thing in the morning and he would not allow himself to leave his writing room until he had written so many words, but he, he held it at, they also had to be good. So if it took all day, he couldn't leave. And sometimes he could bang it out in a half hour and then he'd allow himself to leave. But that's very Hemingway of you. Yeah. I, uh, he's like, I haven't read a, a ton of Hemingway, but what I have read, I like, and like, I, I appreciate his approach, um, kind of like a, a, a no BS approach to, to writing. Um, I've actually started my own personal challenge. Uh, I started on July 1st and I'm seeing how many consecutive days I can go writing at least 500 words a day. So every day I've done it. I went on a camping trip earlier, uh, last month and I brought a notebook with me and went out in the middle of the woods and knocked out my 500 words each day. So it's, it's just, The process is so much easier when you hold yourself accountable like that because it's very easy to put it off until the end of the day and then decide you're too tired to do it and then pretty soon it's a week and you haven't written anything. Like that, that was my plague during the process of this first book is there would just be times where I was just too terrified to sit down and write because I had no idea what I was going to write next. But once you once you write that first sentence, it all starts to to flow. So, what was the reaction of the guys that are portrayed in the book? Even though it's not them, what was their reaction? Pretty much everybody I've talked to has loved it. Um, so, I, I made very I made sure to be clear that like none of these were like specific people. And I mean, I think people know like, Hey, I was involved in that situation. In those shenanigans. Yeah. Yeah. So like good example is the, the uh, doc Johnston from the book, uh, the medic. He's uh, uh, very close to a good friend of mine. Um, and I know that there were some illicit tattoos uh, being given while we were over there. Uh, so that gets played into the book a little bit. But uh, yeah, everybody I've talked to that has read the book has been like, this is awesome. I forgot about this or I forgot about that. Thank you for writing this. So Never cross the docks. They know all the secrets. Right. Yes. They'll, uh, they'll turn on you in an instant. So you write the book, it's finished, it, it, it comes out in 2020 in the middle of a crazy pandemic. Um, and now if you're on this writing challenge, are you picking up where you left off with the first book or now you've obviously gotten the, the, the bug to write? What are you working on now? So I have one 
book that I just completed. Um, I had a couple months ago, I, I had a professional editor go through it. And it's to the stage where I'm in the process of trying to find an agent uh, to represent it because uh, you can't really get in front of any big publishers without a agent. So um, if, if there are any agents out there listening, <laughs> I, I hey, have a... You never know. It wouldn't be the weirdest connection that got made on the Mistress <laughs> Carrie podcast. That's for sure. Well, it's, it's actually about uh, a small town in Michigan who uh, they've had the same mayor for about 70 years. And then this mayor gets murdered. Um, or I should say slaughtered. Um, and everyone is trying to figure out what has happened. At, well, at the same time, there's like this emergency election that has to happen to replace the mayor. And there's a extremely left-wing candidate and an extremely right-wing candidate that uh, kind of use the, the fear from the, the mayor's death uh, to to divide the town against itself. And uh, have you ever heard of the, the Michigan dog man? No. Okay. So have you ever heard of the beast of Bray road? No. Like, kind of like a werewolf type creature. So that's like a, a legend around Northern Michigan is that there's this dog man and there's documented sightings of this thing since back to like 1887. So I pull in the the legend of the Michigan dog man into this. And um, the main character is like this washed up town football player um, who he, his big thing is he's like a dog man hunter, kind of like a Bigfoot hunter. And, and so now the Bigfoots we have where I come from. Yeah. It's very squatchy around here. We've been told. Okay. So, I mean, you can relate them because yeah. it's the same the same type of, of myth as uh, this dog man. And uh, he's trying to figure out, he's been trying to figure out for a long time how to, to capture one of these things. And so the book itself is a, a dark comedy again, kind of like uh, Kilroy, but it kind of plays off from the ridiculous political climate in America right now. And just highlight some of the absurdity of how uh, how communities are divided against each other over over kind of crazy things. So, so the writing bug gotcha. It did. It did. And on July first, when I started this uh, this self made challenge, I, I started a new manuscript. So I'm working on uh, something new now. Well, if there's a place in there for like a purple haired radio DJ. You let me know. Okay. And if it gets Definitely. made into the movie, you let me know. I've always said I wanted Sandra Bullock to play me in a movie, but I think she would look badass with purple hair. Heck yeah. <laughs> My wife will actually be very jealous because she really wants to dye her hair purple. So, Well, there's no um, reason she can't. She's not in the military. She. Uh, or is she? She might well, be. No. No, she's an elementary school principal. Ah, that'll do it. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know that her bosses would allow that. <laughs> but but uh, she has told me that as soon as she retires, that's happening. So, see, now my husband tells me when he retires from the military, he's not cutting his hair or shaving for a whole year. I think that's standard procedure, actually. Seriously. 
I, I, I mean, Jonathan looked like he got pretty shaky. I saw some pictures of him uh, before he got his most recent haircut, and his hair was pretty long. Yeah, long hair, big beards. You know, yeah. now now they've relaxed the tattoo restrictions a little bit. So, you know, it's like even when the guys are still in, they're pretty sleeved up and whatever. But then you get out, and it's like neck tattoos, face tattoos, <laughs> knuckle tattoos. I mean, you still have short hair, and you it looks like you've shaved in the last week, so you haven't gone full Sasquatch yourself. Yeah, I, I'll admit I can't grow a beard. I've tried. It just doesn't <laughs> happen for me. So, yeah, I, I, I keep it fairly, fairly trimmed just to hide the fact that I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always the first thing that goes gray on a guy, too. So if you have a beard, it starts going gray. It makes you look older, so. Yeah. There's that. Yep. I, I'm starting to get some salt and pepper. That's uh, another reason why I keep the, the sides pretty short is uh, I'm, I'm seeing it. Civilian life will do that to you. Kids will do that. To yes, you. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, how would you feel if one of the kids grew up and wanted to be in the military based on your experiences? I would, I mean, I would understand it. I, as a, parents i don't know i would ever like push it on them but if one of my kids approached me and said that they were thinking about joining i'd probably take the same approach my parents did and would be like okay well let's take a look at what the options are and let's do it the smart way so would you push them to get commissioned like the old man or would you let them be a resourceful enlisted guy um i would I don't know. I, I see the merits in, in both ways. Uh, my grandpa was enlisted and he actually, he never talked much about World War II until he found out I was joining the army. Uh, and then he found out I was going to be an officer. So all of his stories were about the terrible officers they had. And <laughs> officer. So it was cool, though. He was uh, actually my first salute when I got commissioned. Um, he came to the commissioning ceremony, and there's a tradition where um, you invite an enlisted person to be your first salute, and then you give them a silver dollar. Um, so he was my, my first salute as a young second lieutenant. It was pretty cool. That's very cool. It's it's the same with my grandfather in that they never really talked too much about everything that they did. And then then as they get older and when you lose them and you realize that you never got to to hear all of their stories. And so we've done a lot of research on my grandfather's service since he passed. And, you know, then you're like, oh, man, I wish that I had I wish that he had told us what he had done, because the stories are amazing. Yeah, I've done a, a bit of research on um, where my grandpa was at. Uh, he was with the First Ranger Battalion, Darby's Rangers, uh, when he when they were in North Africa. Um, he participated in the invasion of Salerno. Um, he told me a story about how um, he almost got shot by a sniper. Like he could, he felt the wind of the bullet off his back before he jumped behind a wall. Um, he, he actually got wounded during the invasion. Uh, did I say Salerno? I meant, uh, Sicily. Um, but he was in the invasion of Salerno, um, and he got wounded there, um, took a 88 millimeter mortar outside of his foxhole. Um, and then he was, uh, sent home cause he had a huge hole in his thigh. 
but we actually have uh, a lot of the letters that he wrote home. Um, my uh, my aunt uh, saved all those, and now I have them. And it's it's just funny to read those and hear the things that he felt was important enough to like write home on the the medical ship he was shipped home on. He's talking about like how the the nurses were really nice and they gave him ice cream and all this stuff. And it's just kind of cool to, to see that because it's not necessarily a side of him that I got to see very much as a, a young kid. They put the ice cream in Forrest Gump for a reason because exactly. military yeah. guys love ice cream. One cool thing we pulled out of all of his uh, memorabilia stuff was he actually brought home a, uh, a dagger, a Nazi dagger. Um, so I have this old Nazi dagger that has, it's, uh, carved into the blade. It says all for the motherland in German. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. That's amazing. Well, I am so glad that you hung out with me today and, um, you know, the book was so different. You know, when when John Hill reached out to me and he was like, you got to check this book out. It's unlike any other military book you're going to read. And he was right. And and that's what I love about it is that you kind of took your experience and turned it on its ear a little bit and not only made it more accessible, but also kind of pulled the curtain back in a way where you weren't trying to be vicious to anyone specifically or that it was just a different perspective. And I thought that I was really creative and interesting. So thank you so much for hanging out on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. I'm, I'm so glad that Jonathan connected us because this was awesome. Tell your wife when she retires, I got plenty of purple hair dye stockpiled up and I'll make it the most beautiful shade of purple she's ever seen. <laughs> I will do that. There he is, author and U.S. Army veteran, Brett Allen. Now, if you're interested in his book, Kilroy Was Here, you can find the link to purchase the book in the show notes of this episode. You'll also find the links to his official website and all his social media links. And you'll find the link to hear episode number four of the Mistress Carrie podcast featuring First Sergeant retired Jonathan Hill. You can also check out the corresponding playlist for this week's episode. I put together a playlist for every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast and fill it with the music that gets referenced in each episode. You'll also find all the Mistress Carrie links in the show notes as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast and make sure you share this episode with all of your veteran and military friends. The most common way people discover new podcasts is by referrals from their friends and family so I would appreciate the referral. New episodes of the Mistress Carrie podcast come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report has got all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates, and it only takes five minutes. Plus, you can catch me every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern, live on my Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're looking to get a new car, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive. Sure, you love your old car, but you know it's not normal to give instructions on how to open the window. It should be self-explanatory, but it's not. And notice how when you're in other people's cars, you can feel cushion in the seats? That's pretty nice, right? 
No, it's just normal. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and put the savings toward a new car. It's time. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.